welcome to the 126th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by patrons Colin Levy, Gabriella Rosales, and Jake Inslee. I'm Matt Enlo. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have Jay Bushman on the show, an old friend of Matt's and also the expert of experts when it comes to AR, VR, and storytelling outside of your regular realm, right? So- Transmedia. Transmedia, he calls it. But really, what I like about this conversation is he's really very much focused on storytelling. He's a director, he's a writer, uh, and he find, is, has figured out how you can create a show, a series, something that's telling a story, but use other elements like Twitter, like Facebook, like other websites and other videos and apps on your phone to enhance that story in a really meaningful way. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, he is as story-oriented as it gets. So don't worry about it being too tacky or too nerdy. He's a big nerd, um, (laughs) but he's a story nerd. I think it's a really great conversation. If you're curious about AR, VR, and want to get into the philosophy behind what makes those special and engaging beyond just a cool technical gimmick. Before we get into the show, Matt and I have finally put together the live show It's a back-to-school bonanza. It's happening on September 6th. It's being hosted at the Famous Group, the production company uh, famous for its director, Oren Kaplan, and a bunch of other Mm -hmm. schmoes. It's going to be awesome. It's free, obviously. Uh, We have three great guests, Carlin Hudson, Tim Nakashi, Jordan Brady. We're going to talk about commercial directing. Uh, We're pretty much going to give you all the secrets of Jordan Brady's commercial directing boot camp, but for free (laughs) in an hour of content. Um, So if you You are... You can't cram in all that genius, but we're going to try. Yeah, it's in LA. We're going to have food. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have mingling. It's going to be fun. It'll be our third live show, but really our second like event for listeners. Second open to the entire public. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know. I'm excited. I think our sound quality hopefully will be a little bit better than last time. We had a couple of technical issues. But either way, come on down, (laughs) um, say hi to us, say hi to the guests, and also... um, make a friend with someone in the audience. I think that it's the thing that's the most special about the live events is watching listeners get to interact with each other. Yeah. And for patrons only, we would like to invite you to come a little early. We're going to open the doors for patrons a half hour before everyone else. Uh, we are excited to meet them, have them come meet our guests and yeah. you know mingle with us. Um, have it's a just, a way drinks. To, just a way to say thank you and to... Um, get a little bit of extra one-on-one time with our patrons yeah i wonder how many of our patrons are based in la yeah because uh, obviously that will be helpful to going to this event which um, is in la if you don't live in la and you are still a patron we'll figure something else out we're working on it but it's evolving and growing um and if you're thinking about maybe becoming a patron and you live in los angeles and you want to come to the live event think about throwing it in a couple bucks because it's gonna pay for pizza for everyone so you, drinks, get to, yeah. you get to brag. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It helps us pay our editors uh, and put these events together, and we appreciate it. So I think that's all we got. Yeah, that's all our housekeeping. Oren, what have you been working on lately? Well, I have been working on a bunch of different things, and we're recording a lot of episodes in the next few weeks, so I'm going to save some topics for the next episode uh, but what I want to talk about right now, because it's so related to what Jay Bushman is going to talk about in a few minutes, is I have a friend that um, just made a movie, Bill Kiley. He's actually going to be on the podcast. 
in a few weeks. And he uh, he's kind of asked me to come help him figure out how to market the movie. There's like a PR company that's being released by Freestyle Releasing. And there's a social media company. They're like experts at, um, you know, making Instagram ads, Facebook ads, targeting mm-hmm. people, all that film marketing stuff. But I'm kind of helping him do the shadow marketing. Like today, you know, we like set up a Reddit account so you can do an AMA. Uh, and it, I just wanted to talk for a couple minutes about like a recent example I saw of how somebody is marketing their own movie in like this kind of interesting creative way. And this is uh, someone named Lin Chen. So Lin Chen is an actress and she just sent us an email. Thanks, Lin, uh, yesterday. And she said, hey, I just thought you'd like to see my blog post about your podcast. I'm a big fan. Thanks again. You were so helpful in helping me prep for my directorial debut. Here's the announcement of my movie in The Hollywood Reporter. And then she included a link. And it says, it's a, an article on The Hollywood Reporter, Lin Chen to direct indie film, I Will Make You Mine, which is the name of the movie. So um, so first of all, obviously, thanks, Lin. Uh, hopefully we were helpful in some way. And we're, we love receiving emails like that. But the point in the story is like, we don't even really know if Lynn does listen to this podcast or not. Sure. Um, but She what, could have done tricked us. Right. But it's not really a trick. It, I think there's something kind of interesting about when you're making stuff, which I think a lot of our listeners are, you know, we have um, Ryan Chamley mm-hmm, uh, from sure. Australia, yeah. one of our listeners who now has a show on Netflix because he managed to get so many people excited about his show on right. Facebook. And I'm sure he used kind of similar methods to reach out to people and say like, Hey, get the word out. Right. this is what I made and this is why you should care about it. So, um, so Lynn, she wrote this, she has a blog. It's called the actors She told us she found out about us through the crossover episode we did with Alicia Oxy, uh, who has the podcast that one audition. And she wrote this blog entry titled how I prepared to direct my first movie. And she kind of wrote about her inspirations Masterclass, Just Shoot at the Podcast, a book called Like Brothers. Um, That's the Duplass Brothers book, right? Yeah. I've been meaning to read it. Uh, and then I'm guessing Lynn probably emailed the Duplasses. She probably emailed um, Masterclass. I saw Mark t- uh, liked the tweet. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So then she went and she tweeted about it. It says like, oh, so, you know, so-and-so liked the tweet that you're tagged in. Oh, right. I was like, well, that's fun. Yeah, so I wonder if Mark Duplass will start listening to Just Tune. Hey, Mark, this is an open invitation. Yeah, if you want to uh, be a guest. We'd love to talk to Jay. <laughs> yes, if you want to be a guest, uh, maybe your brother can hook you up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's kind of like, I mean, it's like a transmedia marketing thing. And right, I don't know that she's going to reach millions of people, but mm-hmm. she obviously knows that people that are into indie film probably would listen to a podcast like this or know who the Duplass brothers are. And so she kind of found an angle to talk about her movie that involves us and then tweets about it. And then obviously you and I retweeted it or at least liked it. So I don't know. It's just like a really smart way to market. And that's what I'm working with Bill to do on his movie. So his movie has a lot of young surfers in it. So we are, you know, sending links in the trailer to surf blogs and surf magazines and trying to talk to like influential surfers about it, but not in a jerk way. Like we're not emailing Kelly Slater and saying like, Hey dude, can you post a trailer to this movie? Cowabunga, (laughs) bro. Cowabunga. Surf's up, dude. Uh, 
we're saying like, hey, you know, we made this movie. It's about the love of the ocean. It, it stars a lot of real surfers, you know, they grew up watching you and we just wanted to show it to you. So with Lynn too, there was no ask. She didn't say like, hey, can you right. talk about my blog post? Can you tweet about this or anything? She just like shared it with us. We actually got um, another email from a guy named Grant Pitchla and he literally made a custom video for us where it's a minute long and he's literally like looking into camera and saying, hey, Matt Norton, I'm a fan of your podcast and it inspired me to just shoot my movie. And again, we have no idea if he actually listens to the podcast. He didn't like mention unpaid endorsements or anything I in his video. I feel convinced though, you know, I think I teased, I got to know Dean Peterson at um, a film festival after we had him on the show and he tricked me good. I thought that he listened to the show because we kind of, we get pitched a lot, but like. Yeah, people email us all the time. They're like, yeah. we're huge fans of the show. Can, you know, we'd love to be on it. And Most 99 of times out of 100, we're like, sorry, we yeah. don't, we, you know, we have like our schedule's full or whatever. But if you have like a really compelling pitch, like, yeah, you know, I you did go. something insane that is interesting, you know, we will maybe consider it. And we, we have before, but a lot of people write that they're fans um, and they aren't really fans. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Dean, if you're listening, I hope you're listening. Um, thanks for listening now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did it. One more. <laughs> um, but just, just in closing, something Matt and I talked a lot about the first year we did this podcast, which is now two years ago, was that we would one day do an episode about like how to you know, try to get oh, videos yeah. to go viral, how to market yourself, how to push things. Um, I kind of haven't done it in a little while, but this week I'm really in the thick of it and I will be for the next few weeks. So if it is something that people want to hear about, let us know, email us at just shoot at gmail.com or tweet at us at just shoot pod because, uh, I feel like some of our audience cares about that stuff and other parts of our audience like can give two yeah. poops. And I would say it's okay if not all of you want to hear about it, as long as a few of you do, I think it's worth the deep dive. Yeah. So let us know what you guys think about our topics. And uh, until then, we're going to be talking to Jay Bushman. Okay, we're rolling. All we're right. Here with Jay Bushman. Jay Bushman, old pal. In his house. So happy to be here. And so uh, great to see you, Matt. Yeah, man. It's been too long. It's been ages. I every time I see uh, every time I see Matt, I embarrass him a little bit by reminding him that Squaresville is to this day still my favorite web series of all time. And I always counter, you need to spend more time with high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jay, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I always think of you as the kind of um, the leading expert the perpetual leading expert in like emerging storytelling platforms and styles and genres. Like you are the AR VR ARG before it's cool sort of dude in my mind. So give the listeners a little bit of a rundown of how you describe yourself and what you've done. Oh man, that's a podcast episode unto itself. Uh, actually I, um, I give this talk at conferences quite a bit and, and it's, uh, it's titled Transmedia Storytelling. No, really, what is it? Uh, because we've been using this term for 10 or 15 years and nobody likes it and everyone argues about it. And the joke we use is uh, you put two transmedia creators in a room together and pretty soon you'll have three definitions of transmedia. Um, I may one be one of the last people that actually is still using it. I just haven't given up because I haven't found a better word. Mm -hmm. 
But the short, short version is it's telling stories over multiple platforms. And what that can mean is, you know, rather than, oh, we have a TV show or we have a movie or we have a video game, you have a single story spread across these multiple uh, different formats. Sometimes that like can the look Matrix. like sometimes that can look like the Matrix or the head, Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe sure, yeah. or Star Wars, and that's one version of it. Where oh, you can watch Rogue One and not play Battlefront, and Rogue One is a complete and total experience for you. And that's sort of one version of it. But there's a whole other version um, where each individual piece doesn't stand on its own. Mm-hmm. That they all like the story will cross boundaries from one medium to another. And you can use multiple formats to tell a single cohesive, coherent story. And that's kind of where I've spent a lot of my career is, is in that sort of field. And is the appeal of that, that it's just more immersive? It's more immersive. Immersive is another buzzword that is getting, getting a lot of play these years. I guess it's like a more fun, like you, you have to, there's more touch points as a viewer. You're not just watching a movie. You're clicking on a website, you're tweeting at someone or whatever. I will say that for me, how I got into this, um, was I started my career kind of on a traditional track. I went to film school and I was directing indie films and then I started writing stuff for myself to direct. And then I sort of at some point made a switch to, as a director who wrote, uh, to a writer who directed. And then I kind of moved away from the directing. Um, but in 2001, and I don't know if you remember the Steven Spielberg movie, AI. Sure. Yeah. Haley yeah. Joel Osment. Yeah. So yeah. there was this. It may be my favorite Spielberg movie. No, it's really? not. Yeah, yeah. Come on. I really I Have love it. Have you seen it. any other Spielberg movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I've seen AI pretty frequently. Like I rewatch it with some regularity. And uh-huh. I really, I, I didn't say I think it's the best. But the one Your that favorite. I then my favorite, right? Jurassic Park is tricky too because that kind of triggers some, you know. Yeah. Next time you boy. watch it, watch through the closing credits, and you'll see a little credit block for a bunch of characters who aren't in the movie. Lyasala, the Red King, um, are two that come to mind. These are characters from the alternate reality game that uh, started about four months before the movie came out. This is before we had the phrase alternate reality game. We just didn't even know what this thing was. It was just this immersive story slash marketing campaign that unfolded everywhere. Um, And it started, uh, one of the starting points was if you saw the poster for the movie and on the credit block mixed in with cinematography and edited by, there was this credit that said sentient machine therapist Janine Sala. And if you were like, the heck is a sentient machine therapist? And you Googled Janine Saller. I guess this was so long ago, you would have Yahooed her. Or right. Alta Vista. Her. Yeah. yeah. But if you Alta Vista Janine Saller, you found her website, which said it was the year 2142. And yes, I'm a therapist for robots. And oh, this is the website of my granddaughter. And oh, here's the website of a friend of mine who works uh, as a thermal engineer. And he has this AI controlled sailboat that he really loves. And oh, but he recently died in a boating accident. And then this pop-up message pops up with this really menacing music and says, go away or you'll get hurt. So you're like, well, of course I'm going to keep looking around. And so you keep poking around this website and you find this page that has a puzzle on it. And if you solve the puzzle, it gives you the URL of another website, which is the coroner's office website, where you find out that the friend did not die in an accident. He was murdered. And this is the start of a six month long Mm -hmm. murder mystery thing that unfolded on like hundreds of websites, the posters, the, um, 
uh, the TV spots for the movie had clues in them. There was things in newspapers. There were live events. There was this just thing that unfolded, this story world that was connected to the movie AI, but a story in and of itself. And I got sucked in as a participant. And when it was over, it was, it was like I couldn't go back <laughs> to just normal, quote unquote, normal storytelling. And it really kind of rewrote some of my mental DNA. And did you tell stories? So you read the poster. Yeah. Yeah. What was your, how did you get in? So a lot of the people, me included, got in through, there was a a post on in it cool news Mm -hmm. that started tracking all of this stuff. And very quickly, if you remember the, the AICN, um, forums were not the nicest place in the world. It's like the 4chan of 2001. And so very quickly, um, someone started a Yahoo message board for people who were interested in, uh, in solving this game. And they called it CloudMakers because that was the name of the AI-controlled sailboat. It was the CloudMaker. So the CloudMakers uh, message board became this hub of where uh, people congregated to play this game. And that's kind of how I got sucked into it and uh, quickly discovered that there was a small group of fans who were the moderators of this mm-hmm. board, um, several of whom lived in New York, one of whom lived a few blocks away from me. And eventually we started having in-person meetups of all the New York players. Mm-hmm. And I would make sure that she got home all right. We would share a taxi. Years later, uh, we would re-meet and now we're married. No. Yes. That is incredible. Yes. And wow. later, years later, I got to meet the creators of the game. And one of the things that they often said was they measured the success of their games by the number of wedding invitations they received. <laughs> uh, we are not the only, we call it, we, we call them cloud maker couples. Uh-huh. We're not the only one. Um, and, but it was a real hallmark of how much engagement this kind of experience uh, could uh, create. So I got really interested in this sort of, how do we use the internet mm-hmm. as a storytelling? Wait, device. so is AI your favorite Spielberg movie? No. Actually, we got to go see the we got to go see an advanced screening of the movie. A part of the game was like uh-huh. gave us a way to buy tickets, and we went. We all went together, and we saw it, and we were like, "The game's better." Um, <laughs> but also at the at these screenings, they handed out posters, and the posters were not for the movie; they were posters for the game. And up until that point, we didn't know who was making it. Like it never announced itself as mm-hmm. like the AI game. Like it was just this thing. That pretended it was real, and so finally but you knew we it, got it, la- this. it launched off of the credit block. Yeah, yeah, but but no one ever said, "Yeah, we're doing this, and it's a marketing campaign." And come see AI opening yeah, on. Yeah. Um, but we finally found out who was behind it at the screening, and it was a small unit deep within uh, Microsoft Microsoft Games. Huh. And what we found out later is that it was the people. It was started by a couple of people who were working on the Xbox when presented with the news that, that Microsoft had acquired the gaming rights for AI, they were like, how are we going to build an Xbox game out of this? <laughs> and so this was their solution on how do you make a game with these, these rights that isn't like a shooter about right. a sad robot boy. <laughs> right? um, but this is today now considered the first altered reality game. And it kind of kicked off this whole wave of how do we use the internet to tell stories? Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of, it got me really interested in that idea. And so as I kind of, I moved to LA and I was still kind of working on a more traditional track and writing, 
screenplays and TV specs and all that stuff. But on the side, and did you work on anything we wouldn't we would have known in the traditional world? Uh, not at this time, no. And I'm I'm getting frustrated, like you know, when you first moved to LA and you counter how monolithic the the system can be here. Right, you're like walking you're through like, mud. Yeah. And my, you know, my, one of my particular bents as a storyteller is I am always interested in doing, uh, adaptations of classics. It's just something I, I'm always interested in. I, my original background is in the theater. And so I'm always like, oh, we can take a Shakespeare play and we can put it in space or we can, you know, take this and put it over there. And I spent a couple of years, um, working on this passion project that was an adaptation of the Shakespeare play Coriolanus. And what I learned is never say the word Coriolanus in a meeting because your <laughs> yeah, meeting yeah. will be over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Warren and I both were like, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That or one. yeah. What? Yeah. 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 Anus. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neil Gaiman. It's one of his lesser one, known right? um, yeah. plays, but I got a chance to see it um, years ago when I was living in New York with uh, Ray Fiennes and it just blew my mind. It's one of those things you're like, it's a Shakespeare play I've never seen. I've never read. I don't know this story. So it, it felt real and new. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but yeah, so th- this is around now we're getting to about 2006 and 2006, 2007 is this inflection point with the internet where people are starting to say, Hey, wait a minute, we can use this to go directly to our audiences. And you have musicians like Jonathan Colton. There was a mm-hmm. big moment in 2006 or 2007 when Jonathan Colton made a record and sold it directly to his audience and did not go through a record company. Now today that's, that's like not a big deal, but he was like one of the first people to do that. And everyone was like, Oh my God, can you do that? You'd writers like uh, self distribution. Yeah. You'd writers like Cory Doctorow who would put up uh, one of his short stories on his website, give it away for free and his book sales would go up. And so this question was sort of hanging in the air of like, how do we use the internet? as creators to go directly to your audiences. And at the time, everyone's like, well, I'll put my short film on, on the internet. And we've been trying to do that for a long time before the YouTube days. In fact, I, I was remembering on the way over here, that was kind of our first uh, uh, connection with, uh, between me and Matt is we, I remember we found out you had worked at iFilm. Uh, no, Adam Film. Adam Film. But, Adam Film. But right? uh, iFilm was also purchased by Viacom. Yes. So, Adam Films became basically ComedyCentral.com or merged with ComedyCentral.com. iFilm merged with Spike TV. But when I was still living in New York, I was working at an internet company doing what we back in the day called streaming media. And my first job, the first day on this job was we have a deal with Adam Films. Here's a stack of tapes that needs to be digitized. Go digitize those. <laughs> um, so we were on the other end of that. And that was, that was yeah, some, small somebody world. sent you $50 checks basically. Pretty, much, pretty much. But anyway, yeah. so, so to back to 2006, I'm like, all right, how do we use the internet to go directly to the audience? But I'm a writer. I'm a dramatist. You can't just upload a script to the internet. I mean, you can, but who's going to read it? Can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. So this term dramatist uh, and a dramatur, I feel like I see them or all dramaturg. the time. Dramaturg. Yeah, yeah. Dramaturg. Mm-hmm. Can you define them for me? I, I don't know them that well. Dramaturg is, a, a, a dramaturg is one of those theatrical jobs that like springs up because we need somebody to do this and there isn't anyone's real job. My understanding of dramaturg is that they do a lot of the research 
uh, for a play. So it's, you know, working with the writer and the director to figure out, oh, we're doing a play set in the 1950s in Biloxi, Mississippi. All right, well, this is what the 50s in Biloxi, Mississippi would have looked like. And, you know, this is what the power structure was. And this is, you know, all the kind of uh, research about the period um, is part of it. I, I, I'm sure there are dramaturgs out there that would be like, you're completely wrong and it's not right. what I do. And um, but that's a terminology battle for another day. And I, so dramatist, you mean a I person mean dramatist that- in this, in this sense, I, I use the word dramatist to differentiate between a prose writer. Right. Someone like Corey mm-hmm. Doctorow is a prose writer. He writes a short story. He can put it online. You can download it. You can read his story. And even though the transmission method is different, the experience of reading it is mostly the For same. Sure. Yeah. A book or a website. Who cares? But right. a dramatist doesn't do that. Right. A dramatist writes the instructions for someone else on how to produce the experience. Right. It's the difference between a novelist and a screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, right. Yeah. Like you're writing the blueprints, not the yes. final product. Yes. I There's, didn't realize that either. I'm glad you asked that, Oren. Yeah. 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 I like, so, I like those definitions of these kind of vague in between the consumer and the creator. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Things in create, creative spaces. Anyway, go on. Oh, and a lot of this is just we need a word to call the thing because otherwise it's just the thing. And what is it? I don't know. And And we, you know. Like I said right. at the beginning, we've been arguing about some of these terms for decades now. Um, but I found myself in this situation where it was like, well, I'm writing scripts. How do I translate these into something using the internet that I could go directly to audiences with? And then I was like, oh, that's what alternate reality games do. So I started thinking about using the um, forms of ARGs, but in with less game Mm-hmm. Uh, and puzzles attached to yeah, it. And there's more a lot of puzzles. Story. There's a lot of puzzles and yeah. like the last code breaking. Yeah, and, yeah. All, and one of the hallmarks of alternate reality games is, is they require collective action, which is great if you're part of the group of people that is included in the collective action. But if you're not, if you don't have anyone to talk to about it, or if you find it later after it's been solved, you're shit out of luck. Oh, that's interesting. There's yeah, no, yeah. there's no way for you to, to do this. Or even if you don't know what the right thing is to yeah. Google, like yeah. if you weren't on the ain't a cool message board. Yeah. Right. And you're like, Oh, that's weird. And that's that, you know? And I mean, this is sort of a side topic, but this is a reason why ARGs never got bigger than they did. Cause they have a very limited shelf life because you're self-selecting a very small audience. 99% of your potential audience is never even going to get a chance to, right to experience it. And that was something that uh, I was thinking a lot about. And I was like, well, how do we use some of the cool stuff here and get out of some of the, the problems? And this was around the time when Twitter was first exploding in 2007. And so in 2007, I wrote one of the first Twitter novels, um, which was an adaptation of a Herman Melville short story set in space um, uh, uh, called The Good Captain. And that was when you were limited to 144 characters? 140 characters. 140. So it was like 8 to 12 tweets a day, every day for four months. Right. Um, Sounds you, like a real job. <laughs> yeah. Could you schedule them? You could, right? You couldn't. You couldn't. Not at those times. There were, there were a couple of tools, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of manual Tweet deck. tweeting. I wrote all of it beforehand. So I did all the development work. I did all the writing. And was so that was when you had to text like a, and phone number for yeah. your tweet? For the record, yeah. when I said bleeding edge, I wasn't bullshitting. <laughs> like, yeah, the joke yeah. I made before we started was my career has been on the bleeding edge, but I'd like to come in because bleeding hurts. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. and so there was a lot of manual cut and paste so you're in, in real time. In posting, real time. And, 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 and it was an interesting experiment, but this actually goes back to what we were saying before about the difference between uh, prose and, and drama is I realized really quickly that Twitter and social media in general is not a prose medium. Mm-hmm. It's a dramatic medium. It's a multi-voiced medium. And so I quickly started moving away from, I'm going to write a story and then tweet it out in chunks on Twitter and started thinking about how can you use multiple Twitter uh, accounts? People right. are Because it's characters. defined by its interactions more yeah. than its linearity. Yeah. 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 And so I started experimenting with different, I won't go through every single thing I did, but I did this one experiment one year. I was at the South by Southwest Film Festival in 2009. I got a bunch of people together. Uh, to, and we all used our Twitter accounts to reenact the attack on the Death Star. And so I like wrote like it out. Like you were in each Twitter a different language. pilot. I cast everyone as a different character. I we put the script in a wiki so everyone could copy their lines. And we put gave everything in the hashtag South by Star Wars. And so there were about 15 of us. We were all most of us in like the lobby of a hotel around a table. Um, and I ran it like a TV director where it was like, all right, line one up. Okay. Line two go. And we did for about an hour and a half, we did the attack on the death star on Twitter. And almost immediately people started jumping in and using the hashtag themselves and Mm -hmm. like adding and making jokes and doing interstitial lines and stuff. We finished in 90 minutes and the hashtag kept going for two days. And that was a real kind of moment of discovery for me where I was like, oh, you can use the internet to describe a world and give audiences instructions on how to play in it and they will come and play. And that really started me right. thinking about like memes. different way of in, ways of interactivity. Um, so I'm doing all kinds of projects sort of like this and I finally start getting hired <laughs> to do some of these things I get. All right. Do you go and pitch companies and say like, Hey, check out this organic uh, interaction. We've gotten like, pay not, me. not at that time. There were other companies that were doing that. And I started to meet those people at conferences and they started to hire me on a freelance basis to work on some of these campaigns. And some of the people who hired me were the people who created the AI game. These two guys in particular, uh, Sean Stewart and Elon Lee. Sean was the lead writer on the AI game. Uh, Elon was the lead designer. And they had started this company uh, with a third uh, third member, Jim Stewartson. The three of them had been at this company, 42 Entertainment, which, was st- which they started after they left Microsoft. And 42 did a lot of the really big ARGs like... There was one for Halo 2 called Isle of Bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one ARG... If, even if no one has ever heard of the term ARG, they most likely heard of the Why So Serious campaign for The Dark Knight, which right. was this year and a half long kind of connection between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight that took place in the real world. And just 42 um, did that. I don't think we've defined it yet, but ARG stands for? Alternate Reality Game. Okay. And that's another term that we're like, what is this thing? We don't know. And some people right. said, hey, it's, a, it's called an alternate reality game and it's stuck. I used to be a programmer back in the day and it's like arguments is what ARG usually stood mm. for because you pass arguments to functions. Even today, I, I, I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago and I used the term ARG and someone said, what, like Second Life? And I was like, 
Second Life is that still around? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. I think I think yeah. so. I mean, well, so yeah. but I know Lost did did like Lost a compendium a there. Yes. web series, but I remember like five years ago, maybe Ben Affleck and Matt Damon did this show where someone was like ru- had a, a bunch of money, yeah, yeah and yeah. was running across America, and people yeah. were supposed to find them and get the money. Yeah. So marketing campaigns leapt on this stuff because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, look, it's a thing and we can tell a story about the thing we did and that's cool. Right, right. There's um, a great so, press release in there of yeah. like, all these fans came to see Batman early because they solved this puzzle and yeah. look how devoted they are. And yeah. if they're that devoted, the movie must be really good. It's great for uh, case study videos. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so uh, Sean, Alon, and Jim had started his company, Fourth Wall Studios, when they left uh, 42. And they started hiring me to work as a, as a freelancer on some of their marketing campaigns for other projects. And then a couple of years later, they got investment to build a studio. And so Fourth Wall Studios became this kind of attempt to build what a 21st century interactive content studio should be. And they hired me and they hired a bunch of other people who had kind of come up in this space they put us all in a room together and they were like, we're going to make ARGs in a way that gets past the problem of what happens if you miss it. And the line that they, uh, they always used and that like became one of our company uh, lines was, uh, an ARG is like a rock concert. It's like Woodstock. You spend three days in a field with 20,000 people and it's the greatest experience of your life. And then you go home and you leave a field of trash behind you and you go home and you tell all the people that you know and all your friends about this life-changing experience that you've had and they go, wow, that sounds great. How do I do that? And you go, well, you can't because it's over. So if, if ARGs are the rock concert, what's the album? What's the version of this experience that you can have? And when you're done, you can give it to your friend and they can have it too. And so there was a lot of like blank whiteboards. All right, how do we do this? And after about a year, we built a platform to, to make stuff like this. And this platform was called Rides. And in essence, what Rides was, was a giant synchronization engine that would sync web video with emails and phone calls and text messages. So you'd be watching a show and then you'd get an email or a text from one of the characters in the middle of the show. The killer feature of this platform was how it worked with your phone. Mm -hmm. You'd be watching a video and a character on screen would have their phone ring. Your phone would ring. Character on screen would start having a conversation with someone on their phone. You would pick up your phone and through it, you would hear what the character was hearing on their phone. Mm -hmm. So you'd hear the other end of the conversation. And the conversation would go back and forth between the screen and your phone. And it would stay in perfect sync. And we did a lot of testing on this and, and what happened all the time in all of our testing was, was this would happen and people would freak out. <laughs> They'd be like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've Wait, ever seen. Sorry, and you, you have an app on your phone? It's not an app. It's your actual phone. So you just, give, phone. You just give the, the site 
your when you info when you and you sign up sign for up. a yeah. for an account, you you know, opt right. in. Like and then there were fallback ways. Like if you don't want to give your phone number, there are other things for it to do. But we would ask for their phone number and their email address and their right you know, and, and permissions. And kind of standard stuff that like when you're creating an account on a website, so yeah. you don't necessarily think like. This is 2011, 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, so we make this platform and we start making shows for it. And our first big flagship show was this show called Dirty Work um, that I was a, a writer producer on. And Dirty Work was a show about a late night crime scene cleanup crew in Los Angeles. Um, it starred Marilyn Rice Cub, uh, Jamie Clayton, who went on to be on uh, uh, Sense8. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we spent a lot of money on it. It looked really good, but also it used the rides platform to put you into this world of like late night LA via your phone, via your phone. We made three episodes of it. And, uh, was Ray William Johnson in it as well? Am I, or am I misremembering? I feel like we did another show with different thing. Yeah. Yeah, we ended up doing about a dozen, there were about a dozen shows that were done okay. on rides. Uh, Dirty Work was the biggest one. Um, I got to create uh, create a show that I, I created in a row. We did the pilot episode. It was an animated steampunk adaptation of Dracula, um, or actually just a section of Dracula. It was called, so it was called Airship Dracula, and it was in this kind of parallel version of reality where there was a steam-powered internet in the 19th century. So... You know, you'd had like versions of Twitter and Facebook that were skinned to look like Victorian. Era. Sure, sure. Um, and so we did with we lots did one of gears of and shit, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Um, Dirty Work actually won the first interactive Emmy for original content. Up until then, there hadn't been a separate category for interactive shows that were their own thing and not an extension or a marketing campaign of a, of a mm-hmm. bigger show. And how, how did the interaction work besides the phone conversations? You'd get phone calls uh, where you'd hear the other ends of the characters. You'd get emails, text messages from inside the world of the show. There was a phone number you could call. But it's on hear. rails. You're not making decisions. But it's on rails. Yeah, yeah. You're not making decisions about it. And on not rails uh, just means like you're not deciding to go into door two or yes. door one. There is, this, like, it's like, there is this assumption in a lot of the conversation around interactive storytelling that interactivity equals choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. And something that we have found over years and years and years of doing these is that for the most part, choose your own adventures suck. <laughs> yeah. And Sean Stewart, uh, who I used to work for at 42 at, at fourth wall, um, was always fond of saying, go to your bookshelf at home or your Kindle equivalent. Look at all the books you own. How many of them are choose your own adventures? Unless you're a serious outlier, the answer is zero because they're not emotionally satisfying because the storyteller's job is to bring you to the ending. Right. But there are video games. There are video games, but most of the most satisfying interactive stories in video games are also on rails where you can control the route you get from point A to point B, but you're always going to point B. Right, yeah. I'm yeah. Trying, what's the metaphor for on rails? I always think of Star Fox as a rails. Well, the, at Disneyland, but, but Disneyland, I, I guess think is the, the car's is right, the origination. Right. Yeah. yeah, It's like you're yeah. driving, you feel like you're driving a car, but if you don't turn in time, it'll turn <laughs> it for you. It still turns. Right, so 
It's unreal. We made a bunch yeah. of these shows on rides. <laughs> Do a better roll. About two months after we won the Emmy for Dirty Work, uh, Fourth Wall went out of business. Right. Just like the VFX, just like yeah. Rhythm and Hughes. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, and, and there were a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is we discovered that what we Your thought was so cool. Insane. Our phone bills were insane. <laughs> but, but what we discovered more was unlimited that this text. amazing interaction, this like, oh my God, it's on my phone. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. When it's the first time it happens, the fourth time your phone rings in the middle of a show you're watching, you're like, oh my God, shut up. I'm trying to watch this video. And like the engagement just fell off a cliff and people were like, I don't want this. I don't want this. This is interrupting me. Um, and so we kind of realized we'd gone down a wrong path. And so the company folded in 2012, uh, which was a real bummer. Um, but and you, you were know, working there full time. Yeah. Writing, directing, producing, Writing, creating. producing, uh, there's a job in the, uh, in the interactive field, in the ARG field that we call experience designer. So while this kind of was imploding at the same time, I got invited to join a project outside sure. of fourth wall. And this was sort of the thing where everything kind of exploded for me. Um, and I, I had the ability to take all this interactive and transmedia and social media storytelling experimentation I've been doing for 10 years. I really put it into a single project on a, on a large scale. And this project was the Lizzie Bennett diaries. Um, the Lizzie Bennett diaries ran from 2012 to 2013. It was a, here we, an adaptation again. It was a modern multi-platform adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice um, was created by Hank Green and Bernie Sue. Um, and I'd known uh, Bernie just from the uh, new media from the community, internet, basically. from the internet community. Yeah. Um, what town. was he from, or what had he done? He had directed a bunch of things, uh, a bunch of web series. He had one called Compulsions that had mm. won a couple of, I guess, like streamies or streamy. yeah, yeah. I think that sounds right. Um, at that time, you know, like the Los Angeles internet scene was. Um, really vibrant, you know, like the idea that we could all create things and put them online and share them with each other, you know, um, it was a really electric, exciting time. So like your funnier dies of the world are being created. Adam had just moved down here, you know, so there was like, you know, there were startups happening all the time. So it was just like this moment where um, it felt like we were at the advent of the future and that we were going to be able to own and create our own content on our own terms and, you know, be able to live that life forever, basically. Yeah, it was tremendously exciting. The flip side of that, though, is that, you know, there are always a lot of meetups and conferences and, and, and panel discussions. And I lost track of the number of times I would be on a panel about transmedia storytelling. And we get to the Q&A and the first question was, how do you monetize this? Mm -hmm. Sure. And at first we were, it was annoying because we're like, we're talking about the, like, we're building a new storytelling craft. Like we'll figure that out later. But you know, eventually you're like, no, how do you monetize yeah, sure. this? Yeah, yeah. I, I do need to make rent. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so Lizzie Bennett, and this is right around the time that you and I really got to know each other pretty well because uh, previous guest, Mary Kate Wiles uh, was in, was cast in Squaresville, my web series, at the same time that she was about to be cast in Lizzie Bennett. Uh, I think that I introduced her to Bernie. I don't know. It oh, doesn't wow. matter. But so. And Lizzie Bennett was on CW? Lizzie Bennett was on YouTube. 
yeah. we did not have any network uh, behind it. Um, it was entirely self-funded. The uh, first seed funding uh, came out of Hank Green's pocket. He was like, I want to do this and let's you know see if it'll work. And either it'll work or we'll do a month or two and it won't and we'll just stop. And And I don't think any of us expected what actually happened. Yeah. Um, which is we started to do this show and at the very beginning it was just four characters, uh, vlog style in a single room. We never went outside the room. Um, and I, I got brought on to the project. Um, Bernie and I had a, a, a mutual friend and, uh, our, th- this friend knew that I had been working on a, also been working on my own on a, trying to adapt Pride and Prejudice. And so she was like, when she was talking with Bernie and Bernie said, oh yeah, I'm doing this, you know, Pride and Prejudice thing with Hank. Liz, uh, this is uh, Liz Shannon Miller, who's uh, an editor at IndieWire. Liz was like, oh, you should talk to Jay. And so Bernie and I had coffee and he laid out like what they were planning on doing. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like all the things I had kind of put my Pride and Prejudice project to the side because I hadn't been able to crack a few things and they'd cracked it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, fantastic. And Bernie asked if, uh, uh, Bernie laid out this plan of, of we want to put the characters on social media. We want them to, to tweet to each other. We want them to talk to the audience. We want them to be responsive. We want to create the, uh, the, the world outside the room on the internet. And he asked me if I'd be interested in, in, in doing that for the show. And I said I would on one condition, which was I needed to be a full-fledged member of the writing staff because it could not be secondary content. It mm-hmm. could not come after everything else was done. It needed to be built at the same time that the main show is done. And if you're watching a lot of uh, interactive marketing campaigns, like they love make, making their press releases mm-hmm. and, their, and their case study videos, but you can almost always tell that these things are tacked on. Mm-hmm. And that, and I mean, I myself have made a career also out of doing these sure. kinds of things. Where you Tacking it on. <laughs> to come in and do a thing and you're like nine yeah. layers out from the core creative team and you just have to like find something that like might fit. And my pitch to Bernie was, let's not do that here. Let's, let's build this stuff from the beginning. Um, and he was like, that sounds great. So I joined the show as the transmedia producer and as a writer. And, you know, we had a five-person core, five-person writing staff. And we would sit there every month and we'd break the next month of stories and figure out, well, this would be in the video. And then we'll put this on a Twitter account and we'll put this on a Facebook page or we'll put this on a Tumblr page. And did you, how did you set your limits of what you touched in terms of like, you know, platforms? At first I did everything and it was, it was. Like Facebook, Tumblr, MySpace, we picked, Friendster. We picked a core group of platforms at first, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, um, it became evident really quickly that Facebook wasn't really useful mm-hmm. for us. Twitter was by far the most uh, uh, productive outlet because it was the fastest and it was the most immediate. Tumblr was good for like one of the characters kept a, kept a blog about, you know, she's a, a media student, so she kept a blog about her favorite documentaries. So those were our kind of core platforms at the beginning. But as we went on, we looked for story opportunities and let the story needs or, mm-hmm. or possibilities drive the choice of platforms. And so I'll give you a perfect example of this. There's a character in the show 
uh, Gigi Darcy. She's the sister of Mr. Darcy. And when you're reading Pride and Prejudice, she doesn't enter the story until near the very end. But when you're doing a real-time internet-based mm-hmm. drama, you have to account for where every character is at every moment of the story timeline. And there's an event that happens to Gigi right before the beginning of the story that is massively important. So what we decided to do was create a social footprint for Gigi Darcy that would run for 10 months mm-hmm. before she came into the show. But we also didn't want to you know, try and make a whole parallel show for her. So the way we decided to do that was there used to be this platform called This Is My Jam. Um, and it would be like you would go on it, you would pick a song that you were listening to, and you'd like click that, and then it would share out um, – the YouTube link for the video to your other social platforms. So we created a This Is My Jam account for Gigi where you could track her emotional state as she was recovering from this really traumatic event through her song choices. And so for a few weeks, she'd be depressed and then she'd be really angry. And then, you know, you could you could get to know where she was for the months before we actually Mm -hmm. met her as a person. And this was the moment when I realized, like, we were like, this is great. We're going to do this. And then I realized that I didn't know what music a 20-year-old girl who had her heart broken would be listening to. Sure. So we hired an assistant for me. <laughs> and she took over. This is uh, Alexandra Edwards, who was my assistant on, uh, on, on Lizzie. And she took over Gigi's Jams and kind of really turned it into this thing where, like, the fans would make playlists and they would make art around them. And it became kind of a big, big part. Right, but of how it. did the fans know to care about this, these jams of a character that they haven't met yet? So when the show started, it was just these four characters, uh, four main characters, Lizzie, her sisters, Jane and Lydia and her best friend, Charlotte. And they had Twitter accounts and we would kind of like point to the Twitter accounts and, and the characters would talk to each other in between the episodes mm-hmm. and, Fans would try to talk to them and they would talk back. So the fans caught on pretty quickly that there was this Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr layer. Right. And were the fans affecting the video part of the show? No, no. There was no no actual kind of choose-your-adventure causal stuff. Um, But what we didn't tell the fans was there were three more Twitter accounts out there. From the very beginning. In fact, they started tweeting before the first episode dropped. And these are Twitter accounts for Mr. Darcy, mm-hmm. uh, his sister Caroline, and his uh, best friend. Uh, in, in the original, it's Bing Lee. Our version is uh, he's, he's an, uh, an Asian medical student, so he's Bing Lee. Um, so we had Twitter accounts for the three of them. And they were talking to each other for right. an entire month. And no one knew they were there. Until the moment in the story where Bing and Jane meet each other and they're instantly attracted to each other. And what do people in modern days do when they meet and they like each other? They start following each other on social media. So the fans who were following Jane suddenly saw her tweeting at this Bing Lee guy. So they found Bing's Twitter account. And through that, they found Caroline's Twitter account. Well, um, and through that, they found Mr. Darcy's Twitter account. And they discovered an entire month of story content that had been hiding in plain sight the right. entire time. Well, and, and also it's important to emphasize just how I didn't realize this, but, you know, I was kind of along for the ride. Like people really love Pride and Prejudice. So like 
the Easter egg of like, oh, Jane's following this guy, Bing Lee. Oh, Bing Lee. Then that's an Easter egg that kind of unlocks everything for them. And then they immediately, of course, they're digging through that person's profile. Always oh, tweeting to all these other characters and you can kind of, you know, they're clued in. They, they're waiting to learn about Mr. Darcy from yeah. the very beginning. So um, it's, they're looking, they're frothing for any sort of, clue yeah. to unlock that sort of and this so this was a technique we used throughout the entire show was we would hide parts of the story in plain sight and let it build up for a while and then we would push people to it and they would find that the world suddenly expanded it's uh the technique we call it in in ARGs is is rabbit holing is like you fall down this rabbit hole and suddenly this story world is so much bigger than you thought so what started as a single camera fake vlog in one bedroom with four characters ended a year later. We, the show ran for almost an entire calendar year, nine and a half hours of video on five YouTube channels, 35 social media profiles over seven or eight different platforms, three or four fake websites. Um, it, it's the longest video adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in history. We beat the uh, the BBC <laughs> miniseries by an hour and a half, um, and we won. It's the first YouTube distributed series to win a primetime Emmy, um, and we hit this fandom that, like, w- we all thought this was going to be fun. We had no idea the response it was going to get, and and how many people were engaged by the end of the original run. If you aggregated all of the individual, like 161 episodes across the the different YouTube channels, we were north of 40 million aggregate views. Uh, In the five years since the show ended, that's crossed 80 million. Because people keep finding the show. Mm -hmm. And they'll find like episode one and they'll just binge the whole thing. And they're like three minute episodes, right? They're like four, like four to six or seven. Okay. Um. Yeah, we, we built this, this huge thing. Oh, so it really became clear to us uh, about three months into the show, we were invited to uh, VidCon, uh, the sure. big uh, uh, internet video conference in Anaheim. And that I was there with Squaresville at the same time. Yes, and that's that's really where, where Matt and I met, was sort of on the, on the met tour. a circuit. lot of times. Yeah, sure, <laughs> this is where we really got to yeah. know each other. But yeah. uh, that was the moment where I was like, oh, I see what's going on. Yeah, because we had... Uh, we had a panel planned and in one of the medium sized rooms and it was packed an hour before the panel time. Like they stopped letting people in because the room was, was, was full up. They had to do an impromptu signing with the cast because they were getting mobbed everywhere they went on the floor. And they just, for crowd control purposes, they were like, all right, let's just like do a signing event because there's demand that lasted three hours and it was just incredible to like stand next to these actors and watch them become icons to these people and and it was it was i mean it, it it's really an old metaphor to, to to describe it like Beatlemania, but like that's the only thing i can think of is yeah. what that felt like it or was like this, vidcon nowadays sure yeah yeah <laughs> Just that, yeah, that, that that was like in a lot of ways the dawn of, yeah, of right. what we of the insanity of the yeah. insanity. Yeah. yeah, like now it's like you know 
cute British boys are getting chased all over the Anaheim. But right, or like a Jake yeah. Paul or someone. Sure, right? yeah, that's yeah. just a vlogger. Right. But we but we were getting that for a scripted series, mm-hmm. and I remember standing next to uh, to Ashley Ashley Clemens who played Lizzie Bennett. And there was just a point where we were like, we have to get her out of here. Like you, yeah, there was, was just like, too oh, much this attention. Is dangerous, yeah. And 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 like it was overwhelming. Like, how do you handle all of this? So right, and even though it was scripted content, I mean, you guys were creating the illusion that these people were characters that lived outside of were people. We were, but we were never trying to trick anyone. And if you looked at every one of the videos and you pulled down the more info tab, it very clearly said directed by written by here's the cast right. list. This is post lonely girl. This is post lonely. In fact, lonely girl is an important kind of antecedent because Jenny Powell, who pr- produced Lizzie Bennet diaries w- worked on lonely girl and she was a producer on that towards the end of its run. So she brought a lot of lonely girl DNA to it. Jenny brought a lot of Lonely Girl DNA. I brought a lot of ARG DNA. Hank brought his amazing connection with the audience. Bernie brought his incredible ability to just put teams together. Um, we had this incredible writer's room. Wait, and um, this is all independent? All independent. Who's paying your you your rent? Uh, well, that was Wait, one of the fourth problems. Fourth wall. <laughs> um, is that no, but we this got is post-fourth wall. Yeah, this is actually, oh, fourth so. wall went away midway through this. Um, yeah. In fact, I was able to work on the project because I didn't need them to pay me. Um, but nobody really made any money um, on it. Was it SAG? It was SAG. It was SAG and WGA. In fact, I got my WGA card off of uh, Welcome to Sanditon, the, the next show. Um, but don't you have to pay people something? The new media contracts are very, there are no minimums, at least then there weren't, they've renegotiated them, but the minimums on the contracts now are for what they call high budget SVOD, mm-hmm. which are like Netflix shows. They don't cover the low budget stuff. You can pretty much pay anyone anything, but you, if you sell it, then you have to pay residuals right, and right. pay into health and pension and all that stuff. And so as Lizzie Bennett started making these deals, we would get like a, a residual check for five cents. Um, <laughs> And like, hooray. Uh, <laughs> but but this, in essence, became a new version of the ARG problem, where it would take so much money and so much effort and so much time that the model isn't really sustainable. Mm. So we thought we had found this new way of making shows. Right. You're riding this rocket and you're in Anaheim and, yeah. you know, a thousand teenage girls are screaming at your friend. Yeah. So you're like, of course, we're going to make some real cash on this thing. But it never happened. Yeah. And... One of my main projects since is solving that problem is we have a format that engages people, that mm-hmm. gets people excited, that people want to pay for it. So the, the other end of this story is towards the end of Lizzie Bennett's run, um, fans kept asking us, are you going to put out a DVD box set? We were like, you can watch the show for free on the internet. Why do you want to buy a DVD box set? And they were like, no, no, we really want to buy a DVD box set. So Hank and Bernie got together and they figured out how much it would cost to make a a DVD box set. And they put together a Kickstarter. And what they said was, give us $60,000. We'll make the box sets. We're going to use a little bit of that money to fund the next show, Welcome to Sanditon. And anything left over, we're going to give to the cast and crew who worked really hard to make this show. Kickstarter opened. We got $60,000 in two hours. 
it closed 30 days later at $462,000. Almost half a million. At the time, it was the fourth highest grossing film and video Kickstarter of all time. And what we realized is that we had given people this experience and not asked them to pay anything. Mm. They wanted to give us money, especially when we said it's going to go to the cast and crew. It's a perfect time to plug our Patreon page. <laughs> just shoot it.com slash Patreon. Just kidding. Patreon.com slash just shoot it. Pod. <laughs> Patreon's awesome. Uh, but this is even before Patreon. Right, so right. Like when can, is this? 20, this is 2013. The show ends in 2013. Um, so like people want this stuff and they will pay for it. We lack the mechanisms and the models mm-hmm. to give it to them at scale and to give it to them in a way that we can afford to live (laughs) while we're making it. Right. And also, it's not like you guys were, it wasn't a huge team, right? It's robust in terms of just like what you were trying to do, but, you know, total people that worked on the show, including actors, is like 30 people? Yeah, Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, There was a lot of running and gunning, a lot of people doing 37 jobs. Yeah, it's like Um, a sandwich shop has more employees. Yeah. 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 And to make the amount of content we made and the time we made it, like someone on a panel, I remember someone once asked me how many hours a day I devoted to Lizzie Bennett Diaries. And I kind of somewhat facetiously, but not really said all of them because you constantly have to be monitoring because something could happen at any time. So whenever for a year and a half, whenever is whatever else I was doing, part of my awareness was What's the community doing? What's happening? What's going on on out there? Taking the pulse of that. That's a hard thing to do, especially when you're not getting paid. Mm -hmm. And so we did, we did Lizzie. We did Welcome to Sanditon after that. And I didn't stick around for Emma Approved. And, and I just. And Emma Approved was also had an ARG component. Emma Approved was sort of the same model um, that uh, Bernie and Hank continued to do uh, another kind of. Welcome to Sanditon was kind of a much smaller show. Uh, more experimental. Um, Emma approved was another year long. We're going to take a Jane Austen novel and do the whole thing. Um, and I didn't stick around for it. And what I, what I told Bernie is I would love to, I can't afford to, I've mm-hmm. burned through all of my savings working on this for the past year and a half. Fourth wall had gone away. I was like, I need to make money. Um, which is a shame. But so the experience of Lizzie Bennett diaries opened up, so many doors Mm -hmm. and you know up until then i'd go on meetings i'd be like oh what do i do oh try and explain it and i'd just get these blank looks right now people be like oh you did lizzie bennett diaries tell me about that and i would tell them and i would get blank looks so you know (laughs) Right, right but also like people had come around to the idea that like Twitter followers were important yeah, and right. that like social media in general was a way of driving audiences to things. So I think before people like said experiential right, stuff. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. 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 So, so let's fast forward a little bit because sure. you kind of, you spent like, you know, the, those years basically in between Lizzie Bennett and now kind of like working on various marketing campaigns for giant movies yes. that had the cash to yes. pay you to do it right. So basically. yeah, so like I got hired to write a bunch of ARGs over the past few years. I wrote um, an a- the ARG for the movie 10 Cloverfield Lane, um, which was an incredible experience because uh, it's a it's a bad robot movie. Mm-hmm. And 
Bad Robot cares about this stuff. Which is J.J. Abrams' company. Yes. Which, did you ever read that Wired magazine where he was like the guest editor? Sure, yeah. And uh, it, I it remember was like that, yeah. filled with all these riddles yeah. and puzzles. And like if you look at this page like and go to this website, like there's all, you know, it was like a ARG within itself. It, he called it yeah. like a mystery box. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. yeah. And, you know, the problem sometimes when you do these is you don't, like you were saying, you don't have access to the core creative team. We got notes from J.J. on our scripts, on our, on our, on our, elements and we were able to use John Goodman, um, for a part of it. Like it was, it was really wonderful and, and it's a great movie. And, uh, I basically end up writing, uh, what is in essence a prequel Mm -hmm. to it that takes place on this secret website where John Goodman's character is trying to reach out to his estranged daughter and convince her that something terrible is about to happen. That was a ton of fun to write. Um, uh, (laughs) the next year, uh, they brought me back. This that was for Paramount. Paramount had had Cloverfield and so, as the movie. Obviously, you probably can't answer this, but what's what kind of budget do you have to make like a um, so ARG a, for Ten Cloverfield Lane? On a studio ARG, they don't tell me that. <laughs> you they just bring get me a in salary? as a writer, and uh, they pay me a, a freelance fee. And I come up with ideas, and they tell me that's too expensive. And I come but do you think it's like cheaper. in the millions of dollars? No. Hundreds of thousands. Closer to that. Yeah. Um, so you, cause you have to obviously tailor your ideas to that budget. Yes. Yes. And a lot of times on the big studio projects, they already have an idea of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the next year I wrote an ARG, uh, for the movie arrival, oh, cool. um, which was really interesting because we had four players. <laughs> there were only four people who oh, followed oh, this ARG to- in total. In oh, total. I see. Oh, gotcha. And it was really kind of discouraging. <laughs> was that but one where you had access to like Denis Villeneuve? We did not have access to the only person no. we had access to was the screenwriter, Eric Heiserer, um, who was really helpful. And we would like email him questions every so often. Um, but this was a more typical kind of experience where. And this is the before the movie done. comes out. Yeah, it's before the movie comes out, but the movie's done. Like mm-hmm. I you got get hired to see it and I get and to see that. the movie. But and you can't like, spoil it. No. <laughs> No, and that's actually a big part of the job is how do you find a story to tell that doesn't step on anything that happens mm-hmm. in the movie. Right, and that movie has such a twist yeah. that kind of is yeah. what makes that movie good. But what we discovered is that the reason we didn't have, one of the reasons we didn't have any players is nobody knew what Arrival was mm-hmm. beforehand. Mm-hmm. Right, and so compared I started, to 10 Cloverfield Lane, yeah. which is a, a, a Cloverfield cinematic universe movie. right. I started arguing that we should package this story for after the movie's release because you walk out of seeing Arrival and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. I want to know everything about this. Mm -hmm. That's when you have people's attention. But a studio's marketing department they don't care about sure, that. They've already done their job. They've moved on to pre-awareness. Next yeah. How cool would it be if at the yeah. end it said to be continued mm-hmm. arrival, jbushmansarrival.com. Yeah. We're actually at a very interesting inflection point in, in digital and experiential marketing specifically, because as we evolve into an on-demand world, especially in television, as television moves to a binge watching model, moves to streaming platforms, where everything's available, marketing departments need to start to realize that their job is no longer awareness for the new season. Mm-hmm. Their job is to get people to watch season one, episode one. Right. Always. And that need never goes away now. And 
it's a slow evolution in the conversations I'm, I'm having that, that people aren't really, really getting this yet, although they're starting to, and I will, um, there was this great campaign last year for the Amazon series, Man in the High Castle. It was called Resistance Radio. And you'd go to this website and had a, a, a graphic of uh, what looked like a 60s radio, um, uh, German, and you could tune the mm-hmm. dials mm-hmm. on it. And there were three stations. And on each of these three stations, there were DJs broadcasting from the neutral zone, telling stories about life in this alternate history universe. And they produced an album of 18 American standards by modern artists doing interpretations as if rock and roll had never happened because in this timeline, rock and roll never happened. And so they would play this music on the radio stations. And then in between the songs, you'd get these little bits of story did not connect to the current season of the show at all. It was just about, this is our world. Come check out our show. Start episode one. It was brilliant. That to me is, is the future. Mm -hmm. And do you think people found it? Yes. People found it. It was, it was a pretty big, success story in, in the interactive marketing world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was done by, uh, this agency in New York called campfire, which is, uh, mm-hmm. re, uh, I've, I've worked with them in the past. They're really often on the cutting edge of stuff. They did, uh, there was this giant Westworld campaign last uh, year at yeah. Comic-Con. It yeah. was a small immersive theater thing where you got like a white hat or a black hat and you had this little, they built that. Um, they did the thing this year at Comic-Con, which was uh, Purge City, which mm-hmm. was like a party city store, but in the world of the Purge, where you would get Purge supplies. They're really brilliant. Um, so cool. check out Campfire. They're awesome. Do not go to their Handmaid's Tale interactive <laughs> experience. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I've been doing these big uh, campaigns, for big, uh, campaigns for big movies, big TV shows. Uh, last year, I joined forces with a couple of guys who I used to work with at fourth wall studios, uh, joined their company called no mimes, no mimes media, um, to make stuff, make these big marketing projects. We've done a bunch of, uh, big campaigns over the past couple of years. Um, uh, I continue to sort of also do freelance work on my own. Um, I've been working a lot lately with, uh, this company called moth and flame, Hmm. Uh, which is run by um, a VR director named Kevin Cornish. Um, and Kevin has built this really interesting conversational interactive system that uses AI to listen to what you say and then try and figure out what it is and then serve you a different response. Huh. So we've been writing these projects um, based on this, this uh, system. And so we just did one earlier this year for the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. And this was the epitome of they gave us all the toys. Mm-hmm. Um, we shot with the main cast. We had access to the showrunner and members of the writing staff who looked at our scripts. And it was this experience. I don't know if you guys have seen the show, 13 Reasons yeah, Why. I saw the first season. So the way it works is you kind of click the link for the thing to start and it takes over your phone and suddenly you're getting a FaceTime call from one of the characters, from the character Tony. We always we wanted to start with Tony because Tony's entire function in the show is showing up and being like, have you heard what's happening? <laughs> right. um, so you get this FaceTime call from Tony and Tony looks at you and says, have you heard the news? And then your microphone goes on and you have to say yes or no. And depending on what you say, Tony Whoa, answers differently. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah. And so you go through a series of five scenes with all of the characters. How do you hide cuts? Are you doing, is it like it's a like glitch? Cut? 
risk. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, 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 um, I'm in a tunnel. I'm in a parking garage. <laughs> yeah. The, the system, I mean, we're mimicking um, FaceTime, mm-hmm. which is degraded anyway, so you can sort of hide a lot of cuts in that type yeah. of stuff. And some of the, the some of them are group video chats with like three or four characters, and uh-huh. they're having an so argument, can... and then suddenly you're there, and they look at you, and they're like, "What are you doing here? Who right. are you? Right. Like, what do you think we should do?" And then as you're talking with them, the characters Everyone's start texting like, you up. and sending you messages and saying, "You should tell them to do this. No, no, tell them to do that," and trying to get you on their side. And so mm-hmm. no matter what you say, someone's pissed off at you. Now let me ask you this: sure, totally unfair question. Are you guys? recording what these people are saying we are recording it locally because one of the things we let you do at the end is like you can make a share image of like of uh one of the images and it's like there's clay and there's alex and there's you Mm -hmm. but none of that is saved that's all dumped afterwards okay because it would be interesting feedback obviously for you guys to be like this is how people are using this right right right. Yeah. Like, yeah. are they really playing along? Or I don't believe they're like, saving any of that data. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny just to hear in the stories that you're telling how much the technology has evolved and also the tools for the storytelling, right? Like, yeah. we, we went from just like, oh, like a weird website with a pop-up ad mm-hmm. to FaceTime video streaming that, like, seamlessly hides interactions with the actual cast of yeah. the characters in the streaming series. Yeah, it's yeah. It's so really the AI cool. thing still sounds cool too. Yeah, AI so yeah. It, it's really cool, but but there's also a danger there, which is that a lot of times the tech becomes the point. Mm-hmm. And then you, you can't really do it a second time. Right. And then it becomes about it's a like gimmick. A demo. It's, it becomes a, a gimmick. Trick, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and gimmicks get old and audiences get old. And uh uh audiences get bored, I should say. And the thing that keeps people coming back isn't a gimmick. It's giving them stories and characters they care about. So the struggle has always been mm-hmm. how do we take these tools and create formats that are repeatable, replayable, also monetizable, because we don't just, and this is sort of what I meant before when I said I want to come in from the bleeding edge, is because after a while, you just want to make something that you can keep doing. You want to make something that other people can follow your footsteps and use that format to reach a larger audience. That if we're constantly doing we're constantly having to reinvent the wheel that gets really old after a while and your audiences are always really really small um so i'm constantly looking for ways to take all of these tools and package them in a way that's friendly to larger audiences so i have a show that i'm working on right now uh we're in post right now it's another adaptation um (laughs) Uh, there's a relatively famous American, uh, 19th century American short story called The Yellow Wallpaper. Um, either you've read it and you know a lot about it or you've never heard of it before. You read it in high school yes. or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, it's considered part of the canon of American feminist literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to describe it as like a funnier female Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Only slightly funnier, <clears throat> unless I don't remember it well enough. <laughs> I think it's actually pretty funny. Okay, um, good, and good. and I mean, it's a dark, a long intense story, but there is a really 
nice undercurrent of humor to it. And I had an idea on how to do an adaptation of it, a, a digital series adaptation of it. And I kind of wrote it up and I sent it to uh, 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 one of my producing partners. And I was like, what do you think? Like, this is a thing in the canon of American feminist literature. Should I be doing mm. this? And she was like, we should actually do this. Absolutely. And we should do it ourselves. Mm. And we should get people who are interested and who, you know, will come and play and not try and sell it and not try and, you know, go out and, and find backers. Let's just find people who are interested and let's just make this thing. Just shoot it. And call it in the, just shoot it in the podcast. Biz. And, um, <laughs> and so we talked about, you know, if we were going to do that, that it was really important to both of us. Uh, this is my uh, producing partner on this is uh, Elizabeth Hughes, um, who is an incredible producer. I've worked with on a, on a couple of things on in development, but this was actually the first thing we got to produce, to actually make together. And it was really wonderful. And we talked a lot about how it was really important that we put women in as many positions in this project as possible. So we had a five person writer's room. I was the only guy. Amber Benson, who is a wonderful actress and writer and director, came on to direct the project. We were incredibly fortunate to get Mary Chifo to star in it. Mary is, if you're watching the new Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery, um, she plays Laurel, who's one of the Klingons, and she's incredible. And she really liked the story, and she came on and, and did it. And, and like, she's this like machine. She's like a like a like a Ferrari of an actor. <laughs> I mean, she's, uh, you know, classically trained, graduated from Juilliard, can basically do anything and is the nicest person. And she's really popular in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Channing Tatum drives one. Yeah. Drives her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, um, so we shot this earlier this year. We're in post on it right now. Um, what's it called? It's called, so our version of it is called digital detox. The idea was that uh, in the original, it's a a woman who is depressed. And so they sent her to the country um, alone where she's not supposed to do anything, not even write. She's a writer. She's not supposed to write. So she will get better. Um, So she starts like secretly keeping a journal and talking about how her husband doesn't think she's sick and she's bored out of her mind. And wait, this wallpaper is really awful. And is there something behind it who's, that's watching me? And it's really creepy. And she kind of slowly loses her mind. So our kind of modern version of that was she's forced to disconnect from the internet and go on a digital detox. And that's what kind of that isolation is what starts her down this road of, of losing her mind. And, and so we're early in the development of this. And Amber actually had this brilliant idea, which was... Instead of setting it today, let's set it like five years in the future. And so what we ended up doing was we ended up giving her a pair of AI-enhanced smart glasses that was her main connection to the internet. So we ended up shooting about a quarter of the episodes from glasses cam. We Hmm. uh, got a bunch of little spy cams from China and we put them on a pair of glasses and we put them on Mary's face and we shot from her glasses POV um, for the first three episodes. Then when she's forced to give up her glasses, she finds an old iPhone eight in the basement and Mm -hmm. starts using it to like talk to herself because she's got no one else to talk to. Um, And so it's going to be a 12 episode uh, digital series. 
that tells the story of the yellow wallpaper. And it takes um, place in 20... It takes place about five years in the future. We, we jokingly call it the Black Mirror version of the yellow wallpaper. May I ask who the president is? In- we don't have the world... Uh, uh, Oh, you're not that connected well to the defined. internet. <laughs> but I mean, this is, this is actually a good, uh, a good point because whereas in something like Lizzie Bennet diaries, we're like, how do we make all corners of this world feel real? We made the decision here that there is an interactive layer to it, but it's very narrow because we don't want people to get lost. Mm-hmm. So the interactive layer is the doctor who prescribes this cure for her has a website where you can go on his site and you can see all his articles and he can sell you some herbs and some, you know, things to help you with, you know, are you feeling sick or you just don't know what's wrong with you here by my thing. And we filmed a bunch of testimonials from women who have used his rest cure and everything is just great now. Thank Mm -hmm. you. And every time an episode drops, a new testimonial will go up on the website. If you sign up, you'll get a newsletter from the doctor. Every time there's a new episode with one of those testimonials, we're going to cut, 10 second versions of those testimonials and put them in front of each episode like a fake pre-roll ad. And uh, we've just submitted to Sundance uh, for New Frontier, which Mm -hmm. is their kind of interactive part of the festival. And if we get in, we're building a third layer to it, which is uh, an immersive theater layer. Uh, And we're working with this amazing immersive theater company here in LA called Capital W. Check their stuff out. They're freaking great. And we're going to build this thing where basically instead of going to see a screening of the show, you have to make an appointment to see the doctor. And you go and you sit in the waiting room and we'll have a couple of actors who are like playing out a scene in the waiting room. And then a nurse comes and takes you and does an intake questionnaire with you. And the questions get a little creepy and weird. And then it kind of goes on from there. So it's a sort of multi-layer immersive experience. But each layer is really narrow and really targeted and all meant to support the main show. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, let me, so my, I wanted to ask you a question about this. I, sure. So <clears throat> I've been involved a little bit in this, um, but not uh, obviously nearly as much as you in terms of using these kind of like augmented experiences for marketing. Mm-hmm. Something I, I'm trying to think of something that might be applicable for our listeners. Let's say our listeners have made a web series or a independent feature or something that they're trying to market. What's like an inexpensive, what's kind of the best, for lack of a better word, stunt outside of the movie that you've seen that actually works, that gets views that, um, you know, obviously there's like, let's do a challenge, like the ice bucket challenge, right? Built around this movie. Let's make a website. Let's make social media accounts for our characters. Like, is there anything easy? Because the other thing you brought up is like, what's the pattern here? Like, because mm-hmm. cause we're drawing people with new ways to do this, but are there existing ways that are reliable and inexpensive, something that just basically takes a lot of work, but not a lot of money. And you can say, say, there's no answer. This is a hard question to to answer because when you use them for stunts, they only work once, maybe twice, or you just have to keep finding new audiences. Um, I would say actually the most important thing that you can do is use social as a way to create a relationship with your audience well before you're asking them to see your show. Mm-hmm. This is the the mistake a lot of big marketing companies do is all they care about is marketing to their audience. And then when that is done, the unspoken message becomes go away. Right. We'll let you know when we want to market to you again. And audiences know that. 
and, and can pick up on that. The antidote to that is to create a relationship with your audience that just transcends the individual project. Kickstarter is really good for them. You Kickstarter, Patreon, Patreon, these things require this, Mm -hmm. um, that if you don't create that relationship, then your project won't be successful. Um, Someone who's actually doing a really good job of this stuff is Mary Kate. Mary Kate Wiles has a, a Patreon where she's constantly just making things mm-hmm. for her audience and filming things as she's making stuff and bringing friends on. And it becomes creating an ongoing relationship that transcends one individual project. Uh, it's it's a lot of work. But do you think you it has to be about your personality? Do you think like... Let's say you're yeah. a director that doesn't like to be on camera much. Do you think you could still do that? I think you can. I think podcasts are great for that. Um, I mean. Noted. Yeah. <laughs> you guys should think about doing a podcast. Have you oh, considered man. that? Such a good idea. Yeah. All right. I want a royalty. This. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there are loads of things that you can do, but it always goes back to why. Like if it's just for tactical reasons, if it's just for stunt reasons, People will feel that. Yeah. Um, Do you remember that campaign? I think we've talked about it a bunch where that girl um, like was levitating. It was like for um, the reboot of The Exorcist or something. Or, or it was for some horror film where it was like this girl, they rigged this whole coffee shop to make Carrie, people fly up. That was Carrie. That was Carrie. Yes. Yeah. That was great. That was yeah. Awesome obviously campaign. that's not an inexpensive stunt, no. but it's also not exorbitantly yeah. expensive or requires a but ton of really time. But the really cool thing about that campaign was they solved the, the, the broad audience problem, right? Because there were two audiences for that. There were the people that walk in mm-hmm. that have the experience, but that's 20 people, 30 people. Right. And there were the millions of people that saw the video. The video is actually the main Marketing experience. Marketing tool. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that it's the evidence of this thing that happened that becomes uh, the, the phrase that gets used in the, in the experiential marketing uh, world is social proof. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, this social proof that a thing happened. Um, so an event happens, right? It's social right. proof, people tweeting about it and reacting to it. Yeah, in real people time. reacting yeah. to it. Oh, I saw this really great one for, it was like some airline, like American Airlines or something where on Christmas they had this like interactive sign in the airport and you could like, walk, if you walked up to it, someone would be like, hey, you, what do you want for Christmas or whatever, right? Hmm. And they would get on a flight in LA or something and land in New York and it was like on Christmas Eve. Or, wow. And all these people would answer it. And literally while they were on the plane, you know, all these like helpful Honda hand type people, which but it was for some airline, Alaskan Airlines or something in New York were going to all the stores, Costco, Walmart, all the big box stores, buying everything that these nice. people wanted, wrapping them. And then when they landed, everyone went to the luggage carousel to wait for their luggage and all these gifts all came out and they had the names on them. Yeah, and it was like cool. really moving and emotional. And obviously the video, you know, yeah. did a lot more views than there were people at the airport. That's pretty cool. And, kind of and expensive. Well, the experiential stuff. I mean, and we're, we're seeing a boom right now in experiential. And, and, you know, there are these sort of three different tracks that are all, at least to my mind, leading to the same place, mm-hmm. which is VR, AR, and immersive theater are kind of three complementary ways of attacking the same problem 
which is what happens when your audience is in the middle of everything as opposed to off to the side. Mm -hmm. And it's changing the relationship between um, audience and content. And I get <laughs> I get frustrated sometimes talking with VR people because a lot of times it feels like the wrong people are doing VR, mm -hmm. like they're movie effects techie people. And I have these conversations where they're like, yeah, but, you know, guiding focus is a challenge. And like, where's the audience supposed to look? And my response is, you know, the theater solved that like thousands of years ago. <laughs> um but I mean, the good news is that these communities are overlapping now and there's a lot of conversation between them and people jumping back and forth. I haven't been to it yet, but um, I, I hear really wonderful things about this company called The Void. Mm -hmm. um, they have a thing over at the Glendale Galleria now and down at Disney. Their right. big one is this uh, Star Wars. Um, yeah, it's the not Star Wars. Shadows of the Empire. Thing. No, it's what's called mixed reality where you have a VR headset, but you're in a space where the physical features of the space reinforce what you're seeing through the headset. If you see a wall through your headset and then there's you reach out, there, right? you can yeah. touch a wall. There, and there's actually a, a wall there. Um, and Which is the worst part of VR otherwise. Yeah. It's like you right. walk yeah. into a chair, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But also the funniest part of VR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's a really exciting time. There's uh, immersive theater is uh, is this really incredibly just just having a ferment moment right now, and there's a really great community here in LA. Um, yeah, of like diehards. My wife yeah. was in a interactive show about a year ago, oh, yeah. and like the tickets are expensive. You know what yes. I mean? But like, I think they sold out the entire run. Mm -hmm in a day. I was like, well, 75 yeah. bucks a head for these tickets. This is crazy. And there's a great community uh, called No Proscenium mm -hmm. that is sort of a clearing house for, they've got a newsletter that will tell you where all the immersive shows are here in LA. They've got a San Francisco and New York and North mm -hmm. America one. Like it's, it's this growing, it's a hub in this growing network of immersive theater and VR and AR creators who are just finding each other and collaborating and, mm -hmm. and having these conversations and building this new, it's like another wave of like, we have all these new toys. How do we build mm -hmm. a language and build a way to tell stories with them? And there's a lot of experimentation going on and it's really cool. This is, this has been really awesome. Um, you're already segueing on your own to endorsing things, which is, uh, okay. Our final section segment of the show, the unpaid endorsements segment. Unpaid endorsements. My, endorsement is going to be for a plain old regular old non-interactive television show Ooh, what is that jay tell us currently showing on amc is the show lodge 49 oh is it good i'm it is extraordinary oh that's great um i love it it's like the best way to describe it would be like it's a cross between terriers and John from Cincinnati. Hmm. Two things uh, I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you should see Terriers, certainly. John from Cincinnati may or may not be someone's cup of tea, but Terriers is a great show. Um, but Lodge 49 is set in Long Beach, and it's very much like a laid-back, weird... I don't want to go so far as to say stoner, because that's not quite right, but it does have some elements of that. It's this guy 
who is a surfer who can't surf anymore because mm-hmm. he had a, 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 an accident. He was actually bitten by a snake, so he can't surf anymore. And he's not really going anywhere in life. And then he, one day he finds on the beach a ring which is a uh, uh, which belongs to a fraternal order, something like the Masons mm-hmm. or the Elks. This fictional order called the Lynx, and he finds his way to the Lynx Lodge in Long Beach, Lodge Forty Nine, and it seems like it's going to provide meaning or these hints that mm-hmm. there is a larger design going on in the universe. And whether or not there is or not, the show doesn't really want to tell us. There might be, there might not be some weird things happen, but it's also very kind of like laid back and natural. There, there isn't a whole ton of plot. It's just a fun world to hang out in. Hmm. Um, it stars, uh, Wyatt Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt's son, right? Yeah. He looks exactly like his father, Kurt hmm. Russell, but he has also inherited the comedy chops of his mother, Goldie Hawn. It's like the perfect combination of those two actors. So uh, we look forward to every episode and it just, it's, I can't remember the last thing that I watched that made me so happy while I was watching. And then the prospect of watching another episode just fills me with delight. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Awesome. Well, um, that sounds great. Lodge 49. Lodge 49 on AMC. Uh, Oren, you yeah. got anything, buddy? Uh, yeah, two real quick ones. One is I'm watching Godless on Netflix. Uh, it's a Western. I don't like Westerns. Why don't you like Westerns? Why would you say such an insane thing? Because it's just like flat land with some wooden houses that are probably going to burn down in a few scenes <laughs> and horses and hills. I don't know. There's nothing to look at. Gruff old men and like women wearing like 500 different things. I don't know. <laughs> it's just to me boring, but... Everyone kept saying Godless is good, and because we live in L.A., there's a lot of signs about Emmy nominations mm-hmm. around, and I've just been seeing all these signs, and I heard someone say, some, it was a, some woman was on some podcast, she's like, yeah, I feel, I feel like a lot of women don't like Westerns, but you should watch Godless, because it's amazing, and I was like, well, I don't know, if even this lady who says she hates Westerns loves it, I better give it a try, and the pilot's awesome. Um, I'm only three episodes in, but I really like it. It's, Keep uh, watching. It's good. Have you watched it? I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it. I'm an enormous, I stand for Michelle Dockery. Like she is incredible. Well, I didn't watch The Crown at all, but she, you know, I knew she was on it and I knew people loved it and she's really great. And Jeff Daniels is, Mm. I mean, you know, you love him on the newsroom and he's just like the total opposite character on here. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, and you know, dumb and dumber. He's like, I know everyone knows he's an incredible actor, but it's like. You know, I don't know that he gets the like De Niro esque, yeah, uh, acclaim that he deserves. I there's, think. if I remember correctly, there's a scene in I want to say it's episode two, and it's this is the moment where if you get past this scene, you're good. And I know a lot of people that could not get past this scene. It's like a 15 minute sequence of Jack O'Connell breaking a horse. <laughs> yes, yes, and I know a ton of people that were like out, done, <laughs> nope, not interested. Uh, but if you get past that, I think you're okay. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, it's, you know, it's rated R, it's graphic, but it's good. I didn't feel like it was like gratuitous or anything. Um, uh, The other thing, um, I'm working with this image researcher now. So, you know, you can hire people to help you pull images for treatments and stuff. Because uh, sometimes you're like in the middle of things and a treatment's due tomorrow. 
And uh, she sent me like a WeTransfer link with like an 800 megabyte zip file. And she's like, yeah, just download this. And I was like so frustrated because you can't look at that on your phone. You can't look mm-hmm. at the images. You can't give notes. Yeah. You have to download a giant, you need a great internet. Um, WeTransfer. So uh, it made me really appreciate like the first image researcher I ever worked with, what he sent me. Uh, it was this website called pixieset.com, P-I-X-I-E set.com. And it's, I think it's primarily for like wedding photographers and stuff to s- share like hundreds or thousands of photos. But it organizes the photos so well. It's so fast. That the quality is super amazing. So if you're ever like, you, you know, I, I don't know how other people do it. When I make a treatment and I need 20 images, I'll probably pull like 800 images, you know, and just like start putting things together and looking at things. And it's just like this great way to look at things together. So pixieset.com. It's pretty cool. Sweet. Check it out. Awesome, man. Pixie set. That sounds nice. I Boy, I'll tell you what I hate. We transfer. Pixie set. I'm writing that down. Well, um, my endorsement is a comic book called Monstrous uh, that won the Eisner this year. It's really incredibly illustrated. The world building is, is awesome. Jay, you would love it. And it's kind of like this... Um, basically takes place in this sort of uh, fantasy-esque world where there are kind of different factions of human-type people, some of which have like more magical abilities and some of which are kind of more um, involved in enslaving the magical people. And um, I love a good faction story. Yeah, it's pretty solid. And there's like the the world-building of like the different guilds of like, you know, the badass dusk shadow viper Mm. ladies and the like the nuns who eat the children and you know there's all (laughs) sorts of stuff like that um and the like i said the illustration is really incredible so i'm just in the first collection now but um it's great and everybody's like pretty vicious and unlikable in a way that's really empowering and cool (laughs) so monstrous is what uh what i'm into right now cool cool well, if you guys uh, want to tell us what you're into or have any feedback about the show, you can email us at justshootapod at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail message at 1262-SHOOT1. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything. We're at justshootapod. And I'm on Twitter at smiteypileg. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. You are tweeting all of Harry Potter over the past seven years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wish. Um, no, uh, you can find me pretty much on any of the platforms at Jay Bushman. Um, just J-A-Y. first name, last name. Yep, yep. I'm pretty, you know, easy to find. Nice. And Jay, you've got a podcast you should plug real quick. <laughs> I've got a podcast that is totally different from all of the stuff that uh, we spoke about today. Uh, the podcast is called Flushing Transit Authority. It is a storytelling podcast about two New Yorkers who live in Los Angeles and still have the misfortune of being fans of the New York Mets. Um, it's pretty laid back. Uh, we just try and make sense of, of why we care about this thing so much over such a long period of time. And we have a little fun. Well, this episode was edited by Christopher Robert Gray. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams, and it was produced by Madeline Rosewatt. Uh, the music you're listening to right now is by the artist Jazar and was provided by the Free Music Archive. Cool. Well, thanks, thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Bye.